Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, it's Caroline Crampton here, the head of podcasts at The New Statesman. Before I hand you over to Helen and Stephen for the rest of the episode, I want to tell you about the World Cup podcast that we've just launched, which I think listeners of the New Statesman podcast will really enjoy. It's called Political Football, and it's hosted by Stephen and the New Statesman's editor, Jason Cowley. Every week during the tournament, they're going to be talking to a different guest about the political stories behind the sport, as well as analysing all the results from Russia. The first episode is available now, and on it they talked about how globalisation has changed football with the historian John Bew, and looked back at some of their favourite World Cups of the past. Search Political Football in your podcast app of choice now to listen, or visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast for more details on how to subscribe. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, we tell you what the hell happened in the Commons this week on Brexit. We talk about a changing of the guard at the Daily Mail. And we ask, why isn't there a big fuss about Tory Islamophobia? I was going to say, do we have to talk about Brexit? But we definitely have to talk about Brexit. But what I want you to do, I was uh, this week head down in mag stuff and therefore not able to watch the appalling blow-by-blow passage of the EU withdrawal bill. So the Tory rebels wanted... uh, they Dominic Grieve had amended a Lord's Amendment on the idea of getting a meaningful vote at the end of the process. In the end, the Tory rebels were bought off and that and 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 the government got its way. What the bloody hell does that mean? So it's not entirely clear. So as it stands, the government is committed to a vote on the deal. Now, of course, because of the terms of the deal, how meaningful this meaningful vote actually is 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 up for grabs because I guess it's a bit like saying you've got a say on where you go to lunch. If the say is no lunch and the burly sandwiches next door, that's not a meaningful decision. Even if I don't like burly sandwiches. Even if you sandwiches. don't like, yeah. Right. Now, the, if it's uh, between Pret and burly sandwiches. Then you have a meaningful... Yeah. Or between reopening negotiations on where we go to lunch and burly sandwiches. Which is the other idea, right? That you might yeah. be able to send them back to the negotiating table and say, this isn't any good. Yeah. So the amendment would effectively have fixed the problem with the meaningful vote concession, which is and it's not a meaningful vote. Um, and that's Domin- because if you vote for no deal, that is such a catastrophic outcome that no one will ever vote for that, right? Yeah, and basically the, the thesis, if you don't like the problem with the vote as it stands, if you don't like the deal, you are not going to vote against the deal if the alternative is planes not flying because, it, you know... It, Your it, constituents it, will notice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what happened? So what happened was then Dominic Grieve then brought another amendment, a more detailed one that would specifically have prevented a couple of things happening. One, preventing the government having a take or leave it vote. 
two, it uh, defangs the kind of Hail Mary passed and leave MPs could theoretically make where you get rid of Theresa May, you become prime minister. Obviously, the parliamentary arithmetic doesn't change, but you can wait until the end of the Article 50 process and get no deal that way. And the amendment would have fixed all of those things. Now, effectively, what the Conservative rebels say they have been guaranteed is that this will, the government will attend to this when it goes back into the Lords. So that was the second reading this week? Yeah. Well, no, it also, because, because, it, because the government has now defeated the Lords, they've rejected the Lords' amendments or amended them away, they go back to the Lords mm. and the Lords then, as one would expect, uh, because obviously they are the unelected chamber, the Lords then um, goes, okay, yeah, we've lost. Or you enter a bit where it's going back and forth. So in some ways, I think some of the theatre about, oh, what has May really promised is a bit pointless because if the government doesn't honour its promise with its Lords Amendment, there will be a Lords Amendment that looks suspiciously similar to the amendment Dominic Grieve put down in the commons. So if the government doesn't put forward those those concessions, then, then the Lords independently yeah, will come those, and those, do them themselves. Those concessions will end up in front of MPs in one way, shape or form. Um, I think there are a couple of probably crucial factors. The first is that my feeling is, is that when you talk to most non-stupid Brexiteer MPs in the Conservative Party, they are... Small group. They no, are, no, I'm being rude. They are fully aware that They've made promises on the Irish border that cannot be reconciled with their preferred form of Brexit. And that the Article 50 time the December agreement and the Article 50 timetable work against them. Now, I think basically every week that we uh, delay an accord increases Theresa May's ability to go, oh God, we've run out of time. Here's a standstill transition. Here's a withdrawal agreement. Then basically as we will be a vassal state up until appointment blockchain solves the Irish border. Yeah. PS, free movement's probably still going to continue. K, thanks, bye. It increases the chance that in Parliament, that is sellable because the alternative is a cliff edge or Parliament remaking the deal. Because one of the other subplots, uh, a vote that hasn't happened yet at time of recording, uh, won't if you are a subscriber and you are able to listen to this on the day it comes out have happened but will have happened if you are listening to it afternoon on thursday is the eea amendment now the eea amendment obviously i've got uh, big love for the eea amendment so this was put in by the lords and it was basically to say we should stay in the european economic area which is i guess the so-called norway model now corbyn has did a long facebook post about why he doesn't think this is a good idea because you're a rule taker not a rule maker and blah blah blah, blah. And so then, as I understand it, what happens is that they that was a backbench amendment and therefore the kind of Corbyn sceptics have been saying, well, well, look, we can probably get Tories to sign up to this because it's not going to be seen as you know, supporting the Labour frontbench. But instead, Keir Starmer put forward a Labour frontbench amendment that sort of nuked that, basically. Well, so some Corbyn sceptics have been saying that. The Corbyn sceptic, because I think one of the things that's important to understand about all of this is most MPs don't like to rebel, right? That's why the Tory MPs continually find it... Go, you know, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and they, I, I do think if they were, uh, if the promise went back on, they would rebel in this instance. But um, there, there are reasons why, you know, Tory MPs find excuses not to rebel. The reasons why there are at least 150 Labour MPs who would like to be in the EEA and there'll probably only be 70 MPs at most who will vote uh, for the amendment is because most don't like to rebel. Um, so, 
of the visible pro-European MPs, they're more likely to be Corbyn sceptics because they're more likely to have gone, okay, well, yeah, screw it. If I'm going to have to do this thing I don't really like, I rebelling, at least I'm doing it against a leader I don't like. Mm. But crucially, what unifies those people is actually uh, their pro-Europeanness. Gareth Snell is a, a, a Corbyn sceptic. Ian Austin is a Corbyn sceptic. Yvonne Fovagu is a Corbyn sceptic. Most of the... Well, so the weird thing is there are kind of your three flavours of Labour leavers. There's your Lexiteers, uh, uh, you know, I Jez's old mates, and let's face it, if Jeremy Corbyn wasn't leader of the Labour Party, Corbyn himself, who will vote for the pro-Brexit motions on most things, but they are willing to vote with the Labour whip on process issues like having a meaningful vote, control of the timetable, all of that kind of thing. There are, I'm concerned my constituents will eat me, Labour leavers yeah. who... Um, Some more of the Caroline Flint kind Caroline of... Caroline Flint, Gareth Snell, uh, Ruth Smith, Gloria Di Piero has put her name to a letter to Corbyn basically saying, we back you on not keeping us in the EEA. And what these people have in common is that they can vote for um, things like the customs union, but they can't vote for the UK become they feel they can't vote for the UK becoming a real rule taker they can't vote for the continuation of free movement I was gonna say anything immigration presumably yeah. related for them is a very very big issue and they can't vote for uh things which block the yeah, they feel they can't vote for things which can be seen as them blocking the yeah. referendum the f- result um and your third flavor uh Kate Hoey and Frank Field who will just vote with the Tories on every single Brexit issue regardless of you know re- you know essentially regardless now the pro-European Labour argument is that if you change the Labour whip, in those three groups I talked about, the sort of outer shell of I'm worried my constituents uh, will eat me would basically do what Tory Remainers do and go, oh, I don't want to rebel. I, To be honest, I think that's just bollocks from soup to nuts. Because although it is true that there are that just as there are fewer pro-European rebels than there are people who want to vote in a pro-European way in both parties, uh, and there would be fewer anti-EEA rebels than there are people who want to uh, vote, even if you have... So I've done a piece with quite a, quite a conservative filter, as it were. I've, you know, I have really, really lowballed the number of Labour EEA rebels. You still need 25 conservative rebels in order to outweigh them, which... Is, I'm sorry, was just never going to happen. And I do think, I know I've said this before, I'm becoming a massive broken record on this, that because all of the other questions about how you stop Brexit or soften Brexit are so hard to answer, you know, how do you convince people that free movement is good? How do you convince people in a second referendum we wouldn't have to join the euro? Mm. Uh, how do you combat the fact that the whole of the right-wing press, the Tory party, you wouldn't have the government on side uh, anymore? Then many of those things, which did help get them to 48%, would not be present. It's Those are all really difficult questions for centre-left Remainers where some of them, which I'm not sure actually have any good answers, whereas the would you like Jeremy Corbyn to not lead the Labour Party is a really easy question if you're a pro-European centre-left person. Like Fundamentally, that's not hard. And so it's quite easy, I think, to get caught up in the fact that because that's a question with an easy answer, it doesn't actually fix the EEA problem. Um, yeah, it's a bit, I, well, I wouldn't start from here. And it's like, well, I'm, but I'm sorry that you, you have to. Yeah. Well, let's, I was going to say, let's assume that we're going to come back to this issue again and again until we die. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, your old stomping ground of the mail mm-hmm. has got a change of leadership. Yeah, I worked at the Daily Mail for uh, five years, four years as a news sub and then a year on the features desk, uh, which I ended in December 2010 by coming here to the glorious pastures of the New Statesman. I think it's really interesting that Paul Dacre has stood down. He's been editor for, I going to say, 26 years and the replacement is Geordie Greek, who is currently Mail on Sunday editor. So a couple of things to say about Geordie Gregg is that he is, I'm going to say, I'm pretty sure he's an old Etonian. I'm going to, uh, I will go away and fact check that, but he's certainly somebody who's got, a, you know, very posh ancestry, you know, people who've been kind of president of the All England Tennis Club and, you know, have been hussars and stuff like that. He's good friends with the proprietor and his wife, which always helps if you're an editor. And under him, the Mail on Sunday has been a, a Remain backing title and also a kind of hilariously Daily Mail debunking title. There is a kind of ongoing rivalry. And in a way, it's a bit like a weird analogy of exactly the rivalry between Theresa May and George Osborne, right? You've got a kind of Tory social liberal, somebody who's very eloquent, very easy in company versus somebody who sees themselves as a champion of the kind of solid lower middle class suburban kind of people who's not who, who sees the fact that they're not flashy as actually evidence of their seriousness. So it's kind of a weird psychodrama that's been playing out between the between Paul Dacre and Geordie Gregg in the same way that weird psychodrama has been playing out between um, Theresa May and George Osborne. So I have a couple of questions. The first is, as you know, I'm a massive cynic about media stories. Uh, you think no one cares apart from other people in no the media? No one cares apart from us. I mean, obviously, I love talking about myself as much as the next person, in fact, probably slightly more than the the next person. But it just kind of... The next person here is me, so yeah, it's arguable. It does kind of feel like... Uh, Media journalism is just the id of the average journalist being allowed to run ramp rampant. So, I mean, partly because I guess my essential take is always that people service their readers. And obviously, Dacre's ability is that he was mostly good at servicing male readers in a way they actually liked. And he very rarely, although he had lots of front pages which uh, deeply offended people like me, he very rarely had something like, say, the Soros uh, cover, which also upset a lot of core Telegraph readers. I think partly because I think one of the interesting uh, tides at the Telegraph moment is it feels that there's a group of people who don't really know what they're, who don't actually have that much sympathy with Telegraph re- readers, kind of a bit going like, what do the kids like? I hear the kids, I hear the Telegraph readers like a bit of... The bit drill of, music. Bit of, <laughs> with the drill music and a bit of the racism. But... As my assumption is always that actually the structures matter a lot more than the people. And while it's interesting to other journalists, it doesn't actually matter. Am I wrong? I think you are wrong, because I think the one thing that I would say about Paul Dacre different to other editors is that he is kind of fueled by a crusading passion every single day that he came into the office. And, you know, he worked ferociously long hours while I was there. I think he's eased up a bit in the years since, as he's headed towards 70. But, you know, and he was angry every day. Like when he went and did um, Desert Island Discs, his luxury... I mean, all the things you could take as a luxury on Desert Island Discs, right? Like a nice bottle of wine or 
a boat. I don't think you're allowed to take a boat. I think they no, consider that to, to be cheating. I mean, so he actually did send me cheat because... He said he would take a copy of The Guardian because he said how you know, it was so self-righteous and pompous and PC gone mad that it would give him the energy needed to um, to, to leave the island. And I think that's really interesting because I always come back to, you know, the film and indeed the comic series, Watchmen, where co- the comedian goes to see Moloch when Moloch's dying of cancer and they have this kind of intense conversation about the fact that they like both sides of the they are in both the hero and the villain kind of they need each other mm. and I sort of feel there is a bit of that dynamic going on between Britain's left and the Daily Mail right is that they sort of need each other to in order to kind of gain, maintain the kind of friction to keep them going and give them both of them derive a huge amount of energy and anger for all the things they want to do from the existence of the other I feel like I could no I'm sure we'd all say that. that we could live without it but you know what I mean currently the dynamic as it works is that they are, you know, they do bounce off each other in a uh, quite a big way. I was on a panel with um, Fraser Nelson, the Spectator, and he was saying there's like three words that are banned from the, <laughs> or three phrases that are banned from the Spectator. And one of them is Daily Mail because it's a kind of really like default thing that you kick. And there's a, a Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse sketch called Panel Show in which they kind of go, you know, Andy Hamilton, sneer at Anne Widdicombe, like, you know, whatever it says, say the Daily Mail. And they go, oh my God, the Daily Mail. And it is a kind of thing that is, I'm not exactly going to say used as a crutch, but like it is, a, it has become an avatar of everything that people hate about a particular style of British public life and the way of doing politics and the right. If you see what I mean, it's when actually when you read the paper itself, that's all there. But there's a huge amount of like my husband and I haven't had sex for twenty years. You know, is our marriage in trouble? Or uh, Lizzie, who works, oh, so also you- used to work on the Daily Mail back me up on this there's an awful lot about Leylandii disputes right so do you kind of think then so obviously because my thesis is well it doesn't matter that he's going because the politics are of the readership and so that won't change so is your essential argument that the politics no no I think the politics derive from him the, I think that most the people and the yeah. Leylandii's are what I think people read it for the Leylandii disputes I really do and I think that actually if it had been any other editor f- but him in the last 10 years, as display advertising has declined, as all newspaper circulation has fallen really grotesquely and dramatically, then actually another proprietor probably would have said, stop doing front pages like Mick Philpot, you know, vile product of Welfare UK. Stop doing the man who hated Britain. Stop doing enemies of the people. Because actually, I think the commercial, even if those individual front pages did well, the kind of commercial whiff of nastiness is probably, I think, been a net drag on it with its own readers i think they'd be happy with a product that was 10 to 20 percent less nasty without feeling that somehow the kind of you know the liberal pc lefties you know gay feminists had had kind of triumphed over them yeah because i guess that so i went to a britain thinks focus group at slough and there was there was one of leavers one of remainers obviously the leavers one was slightly older as you would expect and the weird thing is is the the one thing that was really Daily Mail-y, well, actually was quite male website-y, which is this new thing the right-wing papers are doing of whenever there's a show being repeated, of searching Twitter for, like, Goldfinger. Yeah. Finding one person going, wow, I'd forgotten that awkward moment where it's he... It's problematic when he does, he, yeah. He, where, you know, there's the bit in Goldfinger when Sean Connery smacks the bottom of one of the girls he's with to get her to go out of the room where he's talking to Felix Leifert. It's like... Man talk, smack, smack. And to find someone who tweeting, wow, I'd forgotten that cringeworthy scene. Yeah. And to write it up as millennials rage against sexist bond. What I like it when they do that is when you can see often that they've left highlighted what their Twitter search was to find those tweets. So you'll find like yeah. Goldfinger problematic highlighted in yellow in the screen grabs they've got in the story. And it's like, yeah, because someone on Twitter will say at any one moment is saying every possible opinion. Yeah. And so weirdly that, 
And that seems that's clearly a big traffic driver for the right online because the Telegraph does it, Mail does it. There's spectators. Stephen Daisley now has this weird sidelining going, oh, now millennials hate friends. Uh, kind of, yeah, the, the show, not having them. Not having um, <laughs> yeah, and Breitbart has it. You know, there yeah. are... Well, the thing I think is really interesting about the Mail website is because actually so much of its traffic is driven through its front page, which is very apolitical, right? It's very much the Beckhams and Love Island and Kim Kardashian and snuff videos and weird court cases that actually it doesn't have the same flavor of that of of the paper at all um, um whereas actually i think some of those other right wing more kind of culture worries i mean i think it's probably got all the culture war stuff it's just a bit more buried and actually maybe that was the stuff that was doing well for them on facebook well who knows what anyone's doing on facebook anymore now that the algorithm's been yeah. tweaked because the thing i found yeah again so the interesting thing was that they were repeating Daily Mail tropes, but they weren't the Daily Mail tropes I would have expected to be repeated about politics, Jeremy Corbyn, um, all of that jazz. They were about... TV shows. Yeah, yeah, triggered millennials and then being uh, snowflakey. So it'll be interesting to see if that ends up being the thing which survives, if they do, as you say, which obviously you know a lot more about their internal life than I do. I think it is really interesting about... You know, I think that... So much of that, yeah, I think every every paper or every magazine begins to reflect its ed- editor's particular worldview and interests, obsessions, hang-ups. You know, it's just inevitable that it kind of begins to kind of shape itself around you. In the same way that political, like you say, political parties begin to resemble their owners. That's all inevitable. But I can't think of anyone whose power has been so undiluted as Dacre's. If you think about the Murdoch editors, you know, actually, definitely, since John Witherow has taken over the Times, I think it's very obvious that it's become more like the Sunday Times was. It has become more right-wing. It's become more hardline on things like immigration. It's become more show-busy than it was under James Harding. Those are clearly matters of personal taste. But nonetheless, they are much more constrained by structures. There was a famous incident when, a, like, some memo leaked about the fact that uh, that Dacre had wanted to keep a columnist saying, like, I know he's a dinosaur, but the readers are used to him, and this guy had been there for, like, sort of 23 years. And I think there was a similar feeling about the fact, that, you know, that he would, could stay as long as he wanted to hear that he had earned that. But I just don't see... You know, you look at the, the way that the Express titles were completely disemboweled, basically, by Richard Desmond and now been sold to the Mirror Group. Those are not powerful editors. They're p- people who were, I think should, you know, I wouldn't be measuring too many curtains, right? Um, because they will probably just be there for a couple of years. The idea that anyone will do 26 years on a on a national newspaper now seems quite straight. I mean, I think John Ritherow's done a, a, a decent chunk, but that's between two different papers in the I mean, when he goes, who will be the longest serving editor of a national publication? Uh, Is it our Lord and Saviour, JC? It may be, actually. No, 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 it won't. No, if you can include magazines and it's in his top, he's been right. there for 30 years because he took over when he was like 26 or something <laughs> crazy. But yeah, but um, Jason's done nearly a decade, hasn't he? So that puts him in the top of the big leagues. So yeah, qualifying for a two-legged play-off, payoff against the editor of uh, Liberation to get in the Champions League then. I have literally no idea what you just said. It's a hilarious metaphor about not finishing first, but finishing second, third and fourth in any running order. The football fans will get it. Speaking of which, they should listen to my new World Cup podcast. Right. So you had uh, Jason and John Bew, uh, who'll yeah. be familiar to readers of the podcast. And um, what did you talk about this in your first episode? It was called Political Football. It's called Political Football. And we talked about how, um, well, how I think globalised. So although I love the Champions League, I think globalisation and Champions League has taken away of the kind of exotic nature of the World Cup, everyone will basically play the same formation. We will have heard of most of the players. There won't be that kind of weird sense of, oh gosh, who's this team? What weird shape are they playing? 
kind of different footballing styles. So it is globalization. It's made yeah. things probably the standard. The quality is higher, but it's now homogenous and therefore slightly dull. Yeah, that is essentially the. Well, if you like football, then you'll love political football, which I presume you can find out at newstates.com forward slash podcast or on your podcast provider of choice. And now a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Yay! And the asking us is, is related to stuff we've talked about previously on the podcast, but it's why hasn't the press picked up more on claims of Islamophobia within the Tory party and within Tory grassroots activist members? Tell me a bit about what the evidence we have suggests. The evidence suggests there's clearly a problem. That it is, again, present at every level of, of, of the Conservative Party. So Saeed Abbasi, who used to be in the Cabinet under David Cameron, has spoken about you know the fact that Islamophobia passes the sort of dinner party test, right? So yeah. that it is something that if people now will casually say things that are Islamophobic in the way they perhaps would have said casually anti-Semitic things or casual anti-black things like, what, 10, 20 years ago. And she, yeah, and she's uh, accused Michael Gove of effectively leading David Cameron into bad ways on this. There have been a swathe of councillors and activists who've... Uh, been found to have done certain things uh there is of course one of the things i think is really interesting daniel trilling i think wrote about this um a former assistant editor is that a lot of the tropes that were once used about jewish people are now being recycled to talk about muslim people like sort of the idea of divided loyalties or a people apart or you know who are they you know are they really british can they ever really be british and some of that stuff i definitely see swilling around among people who really kind of perhaps should be, you know, should know better in terms of being careful with their language and the tropes that they use. Yeah. And the Muslim Council of Britain has written to the Conservative Party going, look, you need to improve this stuff. You haven't yet. The kind of hilariously depressing thing about it is the way it is beat for beat, the like the Labour anti-Semitism stuff, in that you have people at various levels of the party doing things. You have party officials going, wow, I can't believe in this problem you brought up with me a month ago that I've done nothing about since the month is still here. Who could have foreseen that my inaction would have no consequences? And then going, but, you know, the thing about the Muslim Council of Britain is they aren't necessarily representative of all Muslims. I mean, Which look, is exactly what you heard about the Board of Deputies. Yeah, and then, and then like, and look, would an Islamic... I mean, look, look, our Muslims are fine. I mean, so it is beat for beat the same story, but... No, I mean, literally, the most myopic of Conservative partisans could not fairly claim that the two stories have been covered at anything like equivalent length. Now, I think, in some ways, the answer to that is quite simple. We have a, a right-leaning press. Uh, the right-wing press, the right-wing bits of the press tend to be... More interested in stories about Labour Party more, scandal yeah, which they, yeah, than they are about Tory Party scandal. Um, and from an analytic perspective, right, so one of the kind of recurrent complaint we get isn't we do not talk about Labour anti-Semitism enough. Uh, of course, the other recurrent complaint isn't we talk about it too much. I don't think either of those are true. But the the problem I always have is there are times when a bad Labour anti-Semitism story happens and indeed a bad conservative Islamophobia story happens where I feel we should mark it in some way. But the difficulty is, is I can't in either case work out what to say about them than is new other than just writing well this is bad um right this is why i keep coming back to a really brilliant piece that i read on um slate star codex which we reproduced on the new statesman which kind of has is about um called the toxoplasma of rage right which is about why 
for example, PETA, the animal, the kind of crazy animal charity, gets far more coverage for its kind of unpleasant stunts. Like it was, it, I think it talked about it was going to donate money to the people who'd been affected by Hurricane Katrina, but only if they went vegan. Sort of really unpleasant stuff like that. Whereas there are lots and lots of non-bonkers animal charities that just kind of get on and save little puppies who are, are sad. And ditto, you know, the way that I think that there are lots and lots of men like Grayson Perry and Robert Webb doing interesting stuff about modern masculinity and its problems. But the one who gets the kind of like proper rock star public intellectual treatment is Jordan Peterson because he's woven it into some kind of thing about like actually feminism has destroyed life. You know, it's all all the gains of feminism will come at the expense of men and turn it into a kind of grievance narrative. And I think that's a sort of similar thing that you you see with the difficulty of covering these stories about things that just are unequivocally bad is that you can just report on them, but there's no day two in the sense of like it doesn't it doesn't kind of go anywhere. Yeah, and the thing is, with the Labour Party, there is at least the day two that a minority of Labour MPs will then say something needs to be done. Of course, there's no day three because then nothing, nothing is done. done. But, um, but you're right. But in terms of actually politicians who are prepared to speak out on this side of us, is a really very, very rare exception. And that kind of comes back to the point about representation. Like you don't have to be of a group in order to champion that group. And some of the most effective voices on Labour anti-Semitism are not themselves j- Jewish. But there is a big problem. Again, it comes back to the media ecosystem point and the kind of commentator ecosystem, which is that what happens and why do certain stories catch fire? Because somebody picks them up and then every, then it reverberates around everybody else. And also we know very much that the BBC and all its paper reviews follows the lead set by the press, which again is dominated by right-wing titles. And there's a similar point about who would speak up for, you know, who, which I think it was a Newsnight debate at one point, who speaks for British Muslims, right? You've got the Muslim Council of Britain, but it has got nowhere near the heft and in you know and um uh, and kind of media savvy of the board of deputies ditto there are not a great raft of muslim opinion columnists in fact, i can kind of i think um i think Mehdi hassan our, our commentator who is himself muslim did a thing you know wrote something about this when we wrote our race in the media issue and it's just not there isn't there are not other people who will sympathetically echo your line who will take the story onwards kind of that's and that's something i think people find very hard to understand about how the media is kind of a sort of multicellular organism. Yeah, I mean, I think because, of course, with Labour anti-Semitism, right, so to take the mural, which has become politically... Saying, the Jewish Chronicle covered that, well, I think for the, covered it for the first time at the start of Corbyn's leadership. I'm fairly certain there was a nib about it at the time. You know, when the... Well, because obviously there was this wider, you know, a mural sufficiently anti-Semitic than Look for Rahman had it, uh, had it taken down. You know, there, and so there was all of that kind of stuff bubbling in the background, but it... Yeah, it didn't receive the elevation until, uh, you know, the mainstream press covered it. The flip side, this, you know, in terms of the point about the importance of building and having your own institutions, is there are a lot of places because, as you say, there's there is only, there's only a day one story. The way of commissioning on it is to go, okay, I know we'll get someone from one of the Jewish newspapers to write an opinion piece about why this is bad. Bish bash bosh, that's done. Because people don't don't have the same mental Rolex of going, oh, I know, we'll get someone from one of the Muslim. Well, there, there isn't a yeah, Muslim so, paper that's got anything like the yeah. reach of the Jewish Chronicle. Yeah, to go to cover off why this is bad, bish bash bosh. They just kind of go like, oh well, this is bad. Meh. The other the other factor though, of course, is and I know this is a very self-serving thing to say, seeing as I uh commissioned a lot of these pieces back in my when God, that's a long time ago now, when I was uh Stagger's editor. But I think the the pieces, both from a traffic perspective and the ones which have stuck in my mind and have really travelled on this issue, have been like the one Eleanor Margolis wrote for us, the one Daniel Harris wrote for us, uh, 
So pieces from a left perspective, more in sorrow than in anger, yeah, saying this of, is, should be my, you know, yeah, my community. The very real pain that it causes people who feel that they are, yeah, that they are of this party's political tradition, but feel hated by people in it. We've obviously had Shazia Allen writing very eloquently on that uh, from a Tory perspective, but bluntly, it's clear that the Spectator uh, does not care about that as an issue, and then there aren't really anywhere else there is no equivalent place where that piece would be written and there's comes back to our thing about many... the, the right being far less self-critical actually yeah. and actually in you know in terms of its ability to coordinate and get stuff done that can be a huge help to it because like you know in the same way that the Tory the Tory you know that Margaret Thatcher divided the country is still an enormous hate object a huge millstone around the Tory brand but you will not hear Tory MPs being critical of her in the way you will hear Labour MPs will accept the criticisms of Tony Blair that there are, right? Yeah. And the thing is, is you can, you know, you can find it sad that this is how, this is the lens that most of uh, Labour's anti-Semitism is covered for, but it is mostly covered as a red-on-red story. Partly because that is actually the only reason why it has any moving parts is because part of the Labour Party continually refuses to accept rubbish inaction on it, which means that it does have a moving part because... Parts of the Tory party, it turns out, are intensely relaxed about not very much happening. It has no moving parts, and therefore it is not an evolving story. Wow, this was a grim session. Yeah, and as you said, it, I think no one cares because it's a media story. So that's made it even more pointless as well as really incredibly depressing for covering it. Thank you, Stephen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. Make sure to check out the rest of the podcasts in our family. The back half covers arts, seriously covers pop culture, and political football will every Monday be covering the World Cup. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.